Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to our third podcast on HMS Invincible, the first ever battle cruiser. And this one's called Doom at Jutland, which is a bit of a spoiler, as you pointed out at the end of the last episode. Uh, I'm Peter Hart, and this is uh, with me is uh, who are you, masked stranger in my well, bedroom? I am still Gary Bain, and we are still. Conducting this over Zoom because uh, we've got the invincible, the inflexible and the isolation yeah. in that uh, <laughs> there's still COVID in Heart Towers. Heart Towers riddled with it, riddled with it, mate, riddled. My poor Polly has uh, a, luckily a mild case. However, we uh, we carry on. Uh, so uh, what have we done? So well, we've done the genesis of the battle cruiser. That's how the invincible was designed. And we looked at the inherent flaws that were pointed out at the time uh, and then we looked at uh, the invincible's role in uh, the, the the war up to 1916 and the main things we covered were the battle of heligoland bight and uh, and uh, and uh, the battle of the falklands yeah um now um we, we chatted about that quite a lot didn't we we did we chat chat chatted we did, did you? we did we did but now what, the invincible what? got back to scarpa flow after the victory at the Battle of the Falklands on the 19th of February 1915. Now, we also pointed out that there was uh, some issues with her gunnery, weren't there, Pete? There was. It was, it was uh, to, to put it politely, inaccurate. Uh, and therefore, it's quite interesting to see that the next 11 days, once they got back, was spent on gunnery exercises to test uh, a newly installed director firing system. Now, this is interesting because actually Vickers Engineers had been aboard the Invincible since she'd recommissioned in August 1914 after the uh, the, the turrets had been de-electrified and uh, what's that other stuff? Uh, the stuff with water, hydraulicised. Um, hydraulicised. They, they still had to put in a lot of heavy electric cables for the director firing system. Now, uh, they, they hadn't completed that before uh, the, the Battle of the Falklands, uh, but which which would have probably helped in, in, in making them more accurate. What is director firing, Gary? You're a, you're a naval expert and technical wizard. Yeah. Right, well, director firing meant that all 
the 12 inch guns could be aimed and fired simultaneously from a control position fitted on the foremast just below the four top. I, oh, I, I would like have the four tops. I would ask you what the four tops were, but uh, you've already answered that. Reach one, out, reach out, and you'll be there, Gary. One man, the ship's gunnery officer. Who is that? Uh, that's a commander, Hubert Dan Ruta. Now we've uh, no idea how you pronounce that, have you? So we're going he, for that. He used a master site, a, a single telescopic site, electrically connected to the sights of each gun. And he aimed the ship's broadside and fired it by pressing a single key. Now, uh, you were worried about this when, when we first discussed this, well, weren't I could you? See a flaw what, what came in, to your mind? Well, that if, if that got hit, or in fact, if he got hit, um, what was the backup? There, there were backup systems, yes. Yeah. So there were other points where they could fight, do this from. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's the same with everything. The more you centralise something, the more you're vulnerable to being taken out. Now, during the firing tests, it it became apparent that four of the 12-inch guns had become worn during the Falklands battle and they'd have to be changed. Blimey. Now, Invincible uh, gets a new captain. Uh, Who's this? This is Captain Arthur Lindsay Kay. hmm. And he revealed uh, Captain Beamish on the 23rd of February. Revealed him or relieved him? Revealed him. (laughs) Ta-da! Ta-da! And my replacement is... Ta-da! Yeah, so Captain Beamish had gone on the 23rd of February. So this is all happening when they get back to Scapa Flow. Now, what happens on the 3rd of March? Well, everything's tickety-boo, and the Invincible sails off to join the newly constituted battlecruiser fleet at Rosyth. Battlecruiser fleet, battlecruiser fleet. What's Ooh. this, Gaz, mm, as I call you? It's a battlecruiser fleet. You are probably the most famous Gazer in military history. Yeah, this had been set up as a result of recent German battlecruiser coastal raids, and from Rosyth, they'd be better placed to intercept future raids. Because they'd be and, nearer. They'd be nearer yeah. than not. Because they're hitting across, aren't they? And and they could get down quicker. Ooh. Now, the so what is, about, what is it? What is it? Well, they you were divided into three squadrons. You're trying to tell me. You're trying to tell me now, aren't you? Yeah. What are you trying to tell me? Well, let's tell you what was in the first battle cruiser squadron, Pete. Ooh. That was the Lion, Princess Royal. 13.5, 13.5-inch guns, yep. Queen Mary yep. and Tiger. They're the uh, 13.5-inch battle cruisers. They're, they're big, good ships, not really very well armoured. Uh, now, the second so- battle cruiser squadron, that consisted of the Australia, New Zealand and Indefatigable. Well, they're uh, they're the, the the next generation on from uh, the Invincible, but they're they're pretty well exactly the same as the Invincible to the to the untrained eye. Gary, what do they look like to you? Uh, exactly the same as the Invincible. <laughs> and, and and is there a is there a third battle cruiser squadron? There is, is there? a third battle cruiser squadron, and that consists of the Invincible, the Inflexible, and the Indomitable. When I get older, I'm going to be indomitable. Um, or inflexible. Oh, yeah, pretty inflexible already. <laughs> That's now, old age. At the end of May 1915, Rear Admiral Horace Hood hoisted his flag in Invincible. Hood Ooh. was from a, a, a distinguished naval family and he was regarded as a seagoing officer of exceptional abilities. Ooh, I wonder if. I always, when you say that, seagoing, does that mean he was a shit staff officer? Uh, do, do you see what floated into my mind immediately there was. Uh, yeah, hmm. So, uh, so what's the last year like? For, oh, another spoiler oh, another there. spoiler. Oh, dear. Well, so, so what's 1915-16 like for the HMS Invisible? Obviously, she 
lives a long and happy life. But well, what's it, it like? be one of boredom, frustration, and disappointment. Bit, is like, that is that like our like... listeners? <laughs> I was going to say something else. You saved me now. Uh, as I oh, sort of that's Janet's life. As they sort of hung around waiting for Der Tag. Der Tag? Is that German? That's German. But nothing uh, but uh, monotonous sweeps into the North Sea, target practice, tactical exercises and incessant coaling. Normally the word bloody appears before coaling, Gary. I, I, I know you're not used to naval talk. Now, incessant this, this is, bloody coaling. This is made worse as the Battle Cruiser fleet was normally kept at four hours' notice for, for steam. Now, that, what that meant was it only allowed for short excursions for the crew ashore. Now, why would that be? That Well, left. because they, they've, they've got to be able to put to sea to within get, that time period. To cut off any German battlecruisers bombarding somewhere like Scarborough. Yeah. Now, to alleviate... Alleviate? To alleviate and to sustain morale, sport was encouraged and inter-ship rivalry quickly developed. You mean, you mean ships are competitive between each other? Yeah. Now, at Rosyth, they even put eight football pitches like, uh, down for the, for the men. And for the officers, ah. they got uh, a rugby pitch and two hockey pitches. It must be mad. Now, uh, a wet canteen... Oh, I can wet. see some problems with does that. Mean it, does, it, does that mean it leaks? Yeah. A wet canteen was constructed on the recreation ground to sell beer... Hooray! Tea... Vile substance. Coffee... I like coffee. Yeah, buy us one. Uh, <laughs> mineral waters and pastries. I like pastries. You myself. do like pastries, and you look like a gigantic pastry. Now, it was but, open for the afternoon Liberty Men. That's the between, men ashore on leave, isn't it? Between 13.30 and 16.30. But beer could only be purchased by tickets, the maximum allowed being two tickets per man. Now, that, that doesn't sound enough for a normal matelot. No, and I, I would have been gathering tickets or forging <laughs> them or whatever. Yeah, I could to get more. Now, even, even Hood himself was bored, and I'm going to be Rear Admiral Horace Hood of HMS Invincible. When the war ends, I shall settle down on shore and spend the rest of my life bringing up my children and gardening. Now, to think that gardening and bringing up children would be some sort of good thing, he must have been bloody suicidal. He must have been <laughs> to even think that sounded good. To me, that sounds like a definition of horror. And I've met your children and you probably should. And actually, I've seen your garden. And uh, I've met yours. <laughs> now, uh, actually, he moves his family. <laughs> little swines. He moves his family close by. And I'm going to be midshipman Alexander Scrimgour of HMS Invincible. Yesterday, I went to tea with Mrs. Hood and family. They have a house on shore near our base with a tennis court and some excellent strawberry beds. As there are two A1 daughters, wow. 17 and 19, you can bet their hospitality is fully appreciated. I bet it was. Because, well, midshipman, he'd be quite young. He'd be about that age himself, wouldn't he, probably? Now, uh, even on... Even on the, the, when they go out on a sweep in the North Sea training, or, or, or because there's been some sort of alarm, that how do you think they feel? How how do you think they're feeling as they go out for a, 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 another sweep in the North Sea? Bored, 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 bored. 
like our listeners again. And I'm going to be Assistant Paymaster Gordon Franklin on The Invincible. And see, our thoughts centre on a sub- single subject, the enemy. It's only natural that we seem to lose absolutely the true perspective of ordinary things. Cooped up as closely as we are, trivialities of, of, at, at, all, at all an irksome nature are apt to become enormities. And outside one's work, petty peculiarities of a messmate, at first not even noticed, then whimsically tolerated, now after a few days' bad weather, seem absolutely abhorrent. For instance, one gets to the stage of considering it a personal insult that somebody splutters whilst drinking his tea. Ah! At times, one takes a feverish delight in welcoming additional discomforts, which must be bad, and a green sea down the wardroom skylight, resulting in a mess for an hour or two being an absolute snipe marsh, seems to be the best tonic going for a generally mouldy atmosphere. So he's pissed off. <laughs> Yeah, it's well, like as the, well. The, it? I like the way, you know, that that is human nature. If you're locked up with someone, you know, those minor little t- mm, idiosyncratic habits that we all love suddenly become infuriating. Yes, they do. What do you mean by that saying yes, they do in that tone of voice? <laughs> now, time passed slowly. Exercises, oh, sweeps, calling, sweeps, calling, gunnery practice, calling, exercises, more sweeps, calling, more bloody calling. Oh. And once more, I'm going to be midshipman Alexander Scrimgeier of HMS Invincible. Oh, we're coming up to one of my favourite quotes. <laughs> Not this one, the next one. I've just seen it coming, Gary. <laughs> Spoilers. Oh, yeah. Weighed at 8am and went out to do a full-charge heavy gun firing in the Moray Firth. A film of the firing was taken from the light cruiser Active, fired with the Indomitable, and the Inflexible fired with the vanguard of the 1st Battle Squadron. All the uh, loading went off swimmingly in A turret, much to the delight of Delio and myself. All glass in the ship broken by the firing, and all small fittings dislodged. A gorgeous day left the Firth and proceeded into the North Sea. In the evening, we ran into a thick fog, entered the Firth of Forth and anchored in our usual billet at 0900. What would they have to do then? What would they do then? What happens then? Cold ship from the Collier Slav, 800 tonnes in very nearly record time. 800 tonnes. And this is all manual. Absolutely. It, it, and and it, then on top of that, you've got the, the tactical exercises at sea and some some were, were sort of more imaginative than others. And some of the sailors were more imaginative than others, as you're about to reveal. Yeah, and once more, I'm going to be uh, Alexander Scrimgoer. We, the 3rd Battlecruiser Squadron, represented the German battlecruisers and the 1st and 2nd Battlecruiser Squadrons represented our battlecruiser fleet. We approached the Norwegian coast and tried to slip up north unobserved and escape into the Atlantic, but they scotched us. Rather a dull affair, full speed all forenoon without undue forcing. We averaged 25 knots and touched 26. Much ado down in the engine and boiler rooms. Old Weeks, the engineer commander, the only one not to be flurried. Mog, the engineer lieutenant, sent me requesting the old boy to come down to the starboard engine room at once as the vacuum was dangerously high. The dear old chap insisted on my squeezing into the engine room lift with him. He stopped it halfway down, 
and suggested that this was an ideal place for kissing the girls, and also recounted how he told this to Admiral Milne when the latter was inspecting the ship, the Admiral answering, Go on, go on, engineer commander, I'm not a damned girl. Sailors, eh? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> that is just the most wonderful quote. Uh, I don't think it's going to get any better than that during this podcast. Now, um, what do you think? Uh, what do you think people are doing during this phase? Do you, do you think people like Jellico and other and other high ups? What do you think they're looking at? What do you think they're thinking about with the with the battle cruisers generally? Well, because of of what had happened. Uh, they were taking a, a great interest in in their gunnery, so the uh, the gunnery efficiency of the Invincible was only rated as good. Sometimes that's not exactly high praise, is it? So, the, uh, the Invincible's just good sometimes. That that's... good so, now only the Queen Mary, Princess Royal, and Inflexible in the whole battle cruiser fleet were rated as good. And, and good isn't that good. There's, a, there's excellent above that. And, and uh, well, it boils down to that there's simply not enough practice firing. Between May 1915 and March 1916, Invincible only fired her 12-inch guns on four separate occasions and then only four rounds per gun each time. And the range was never in excess of 12,000 yards. So this is a, a problem. Now, uh, of course, the Germans, uh, well, I expect they're just sitting about in harbour doing nothing. Well, they're carrying out regular, uh, regular gunnery practices in Kiel Bay at ranges as high as 14,000 yards. And, uh, you know, the old adage, peak practice makes perfect. Or, uh, yeah, we'll, be, we'll, or, we'll do a perfect podcast one day. Yeah, or perhaps cheating, depending upon uh, your perspective. <laughs> Let's cheat in our podcasts. Um, right, and then there's a bit of excitement. Um, um, on the 7th... Uh, uh, <laughs> At seven o'clock, oh seven hundred. Let's be let's be formal about this guy. Formal. Oh seven hundred on the twenty fourth of, uh, of uh, April, uh, the the battle cruiser fleets ordered to raise steam and proceed to sea. Um, now, uh, what's going on? Well, they'd intercepted German signals at the Admiralty and they'd learnt that the high seas fleet had sailed from the Jade at noon and was at noon and was steering for the east coast of England with the object of bombarding the east coast. Now, this this business about signals is, is crucial to understanding the North Sea because the British uh, had direction finding stations so they could tell the origin of the signals and they'd also decoded it. So when they got the signals, they could decode them. This is going on. So the battle cruiser fleet, where they say at 10.50, so as usual, it takes three or four hours to get ready, and they sail south in a heavy gale. Uh, what, can, what speed can they make in there? Well, it's well quite they're good, doing really. some 20 knots. That's, that's only four knots no, below no, top. They're, they're doing that's well. good, good. Now, behind them, the Grand Fleet was some um, 165 miles astern, having sailed from Scarpa Flow at 11 o'clock. Oh. Now, now, what are they trying to do? Well, their hopes were high of, of cutting off the, the retreat of the four German battlecruisers who'd shelled Lowestoft and Great Yarmouth and were now falling back on the German high seas fleet. Now, do, do, they, do they do it? Do they do it? Do they do it? Is this a great battle? No, no. <laughs> no, because of the deteriorating weather, the fleets actually miss each other uh, and returned home. But on the way back, there's a minor collision with a patrol yacht and, and that would put Invincible in dock for a month. It's a shame it wasn't two months. I'm, I'm, uh, you'll well, see why. Said, I yeah, but it, this at last gave the chance of, of some home leave. Well, uh, sure, and, yeah, and, yeah. You know, and for some, that would prove the last time that most of the crew would ever see their families. 
So, uh, so basically, t- uh, 24th, 25th, they're, they're out in the sea, have a bit of a punch up, and then back and in port. Uh, so, what's going to happen next? Well, we're uh, they rejoin the third battle cruiser squadron at Rosyth on the morning of the 22nd of May, 1916. But something's happening. Uh, and this is this will decide the fate of the Invincible. What's happening to the third battlecruiser squadron? Well, the squadron's then transferred to the Grand Fleet at Scarpa for nine days of gunnery practice. Uh, and one of the reasons was there was far more room. There is. That what, what one reason there's more room is because if you're at Rosyth, you can't you can't. If you go out, you might be hit by submarines. But in Rosyth, you can if you fire your guns in in inside the Firth of Sausage. You're gonna you're gonna break all the windows in Edinburgh. Now you and I would rejoice at the opportunity of breaking every window in Edinburgh, uh, but but they, they didn't. So the the, the the idea was to send them to Scapa where they could practice their gunnery to the heart's content. Because after all, who cares about the odd crofter at Scapa uh, and the Orkneys or wherever it is? Is it the Orkneys or the Shetlands? It's gone out. Now they were temporarily replaced, as I was trying to say before being so rudely interrupted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've just done it again. Sorry. By the Fifth Battle Squadron. Who are they? <laughs> the Fifth Battle Squadron. Now, they never returned as the Battle of Jutland was nigh. Dun, yeah. dun, dun. Now, the reason they picked the Fifth Battle Squadron to replace them is that's the Super Dreadnoughts. That is the uh, Queen Elizabeth class, although the Queen Elizabeth class wasn't with them. They were the War Spite and our other chums that we, we did a podcast on the War Spite. And why were they super? Because they had armour, they had guns, and they had speed. They were just super. They were super. Now, we haven't got time for a history of the Battle of Jutland. However, however, on the 31st of May, excuse me, 1916, the battle cruisers and main dreadnought fleets were once again out. Out, out. Out. Ah, so there you go. There'd been another warning that the high seas fleet were out. We we did a podcast on on on, on Jutland, and we can't. We're just going to sketch this. When the Grand Fleet sails from 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 Scapa Flow, Hood, the uh, the Admiral Hood, is ordered by Jellicoe to take up station ten miles ahead of the Grand Fleet, and they're part of an advanced scouting screen. Uh, as they steam south, the battle cruiser fleet is way ahead of them, uh, coming out of Rosyth. Uh, and now, who's screening the third battlecruiser squadron? Because uh, everything has to have a screen. Uh, so, uh, who's screening that? Well, it was screened by four destroyers and the light cruisers Chester and Canterbury to take up station 10 miles ahead of the Grand Fleet as an advanced scouting screen. Isn't, and Chester, most... isn't Chester where the Great War Group are having their, uh, their uh, AGM sort of big conference this year? It is, but not this one. Oh, different Chester. Now, most people thought it was just one more fruitless sweep. Yeah, that's because the Admiralty had told everybody that, uh, well, they told uh, Beatty and Jellicoe that the, the high seas fleet weren't out. We Again, we're not going to go into that, but they didn't know what was going to happen at all. Uh, so it's a bit of a surprise when Beatty's battlecruiser fleet makes contact in the afternoon and uh, uh, action stations are sounded aboard the Invincible at 15.18. Uh, and uh, as reports... Uh, come in from Beatty saying he's in action with the German battlecruiser fleet uh, without informing Jellico, without waiting for instructions. Hood, Hood seizes the initiative. He swings his squadron round onto a south-southeasterly course at 1606 uh, and uh, to- he tears off, doesn't he? Tears off to support uh, uh, Beatty at full speed. This is quite interesting because this is an admiral uses, using his initiative. 
Why does Jellicoe worry about admirals using their initiative? Well, because as we said previously, he likes to retain control and he'd laid down almost um, direct instructions for every possible scenario. And the reason for that was that if, if people use their initiative, they can get isolated and defeated in detail. So in a way, Hood is being bold here. Uh, I'm not going to criticise him for it because uh, he's a brave man and uh, it doesn't end well for him, does it? Now, what's going on? Uh, so the battlecruisers fleets... The, 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 the British and German, they're engaged in what we call the run to the south, isn't it? So what's happening there? Well, the uh, Admiral von Hipper, he, he's trying to lead Beatty towards the mass guns of the high seas fleet commanded by Admiral uh, von Scheer, which is lurking to the lurking, south. Lurking, Gary, lurking. Lurking. Now, as much as a ship can lurk. Now, Beatty lost the indefatigable, 1,017 dead, and oh. Queen Mary... 1,266 dead. So, so during uh, the run to the south, they lose two battlecruisers. Oh. Yeah, perhaps speed wasn't armour, Pete. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, you're quoting Fisher at me, Fisher's dictum. Yeah, and um, when the high seas fleet was sighted, Beatty turned north, intent on luring Von Scheer in towards Jellicoe's grand, grand fleet. What's this, this called? Rather imaginatively, this was the run to the north. Ah, oh, the Navy. They're such imaginative boys, aren't they? <laughs> now, now, in a confused uh, situation, Hood's third battlecruiser squadron was still steaming north, invincible leading, followed by inflexible and indomitable. So, basically, they're going... They're heading... Uh, they're heading... Uh, they're going uh, south. They're going south. Uh, sorry, yeah. I've, I've, that's a typo, that. Sorry about that. So, they're yeah, still they're going, going south. south. So, they're going towards them. And and the battle uh, Beatty is going north. Yeah, we, I'm getting confused here uh, by my own stupidity. You must have written this when you was unwell, Pete. I did. Uh, luckily, I'm completely recovered now. Now, Invincible. Uh, so uh, on board the Invincible, what happens there? About 1730, they begin to hear the sound of firing, and that's the German battlecruisers uh, and and the German high seas fleet, and they're firing at the the 5th Battle Squadron, which is behind the Beatty's battlecruisers at this stage, and taking a right pounding, but handing it out as well. Now, what now, happens then? At this point, everything begins to kick off, as they say The Chester, uh, that's the light cruiser, ran into the four German light cruiser screens who caused severe damage, and in fact... <clears throat> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A young John Jack Cornwall was aboard the Chester, who uh, who was awarded the VC, the young 16-year-old, um, and, and was the subject of uh, Kipling's My Boy Jack. Which we referenced in, uh, which podcast was that? No idea. Well, it would have been in the Jackman podcast, no doubt. Yeah, sure it was. Now, they run into the, uh, the, the German-like cruisers, of course, severe damage. Uh, stationed five miles northwest on the disengaged side of the German battle cruisers. Yeah, we'll have to put a map up of this. But to be honest, you don't really need to understand it because it's just wiggly ships all over the place. Now, what does Hood do? Does he... Well, uh, he turns towards the firing, and at 1753, his battle cruisers opened fire on the German light cruisers at a range of 12,000 yards. Did it hit anything? Yeah, Invincible scored a hit on Wiesbaden, uh, put both her engines out of action, and doomed her to a long, drawn-out destruction later. Yeah, um, that's good. she's hammered to bits, the Wiesbaden, by every ship that passes her, because she's yeah. helpless. German destroyers tried to launch an attack on Hood's battlecruisers, but the screening British destroyers managed to keep them at bay. Now, at this point, Hood sights Beatty's battlecruisers. They're there to the westward at this point, and he could see they're heavily engaged with unknown German ships. <clears throat> they're in the mist to the south. Now, Hood turns to the west to close in with Beatty, uh, and in doing so, he's dodging the, the few German destroyer torpedoes that, 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 uh, that are coming his way. He dodges them, uh, although <laughs> during this, it's a bit of an echo of the war spot. The Invincible's helm briefly jams, and they're, they're forced to a, a brief stop. Uh, so what happens next? What happens next? Because this is all getting very exciting, Gary. Uh, 1820... Hood sighted Beatty's battlecruisers some 4,000 yards to the southwest in action firing at the German battlecruisers, who were also visible for the first time some 11,000 yards to the southwest. Now, behind Beatty, Jellicoe yeah. was deploying the Grand, the Grand Fleet from six columns into one gigantic line of battle, surrounded by his various screening destroyers and cruisers. Now, at 1822... 
Hood swings the Invincible through 180 degrees, so right round, and takes up station 3,000 yards ahead of Beatty and the Lion, heading on a southeasterly course. Hang on. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? What Think about it, Gary. What does this mean? Well, that now means that a ship designed to hunt down armed merchant cruisers and commerce raiding cruisers is now leading the whole of the battle fleet. It's the leading ship, and it's about to engage the mighty battle cruisers and dreadnoughts of the German high seas fleet. Was it? Uh, hang on. That, that's not going to end well, is it? Spoilers. Now, uh, so at this point, the Invincible's on a parallel course with five German battlecruisers. They're 9,000 yards to Starburg. Now, these have already been badly battered by the 5th Battle Squadron, who are good at gunnery and have scored many, many hits on the German battlecruisers and on the, the leading uh, German dreadnoughts. Uh, now, uh, Beatty's battlecruisers, they <coughs> engage the, the three uh, German battlecruisers the, the, at the back. Right, so there's three German battlecruisers at the back, and they're engaged by the Beatty's battlecruisers. Now Hood's third battle squadron, a battle cruiser squadron, they concentrate their fire on the leading German battlecruiser. Now who are they, Gary? Who are they? Are they are they are they, are they the Vondertan or, or something else? I can see why you've asked me to do this. They are the Litzov and the Derflinger. The I two, think it's Litzov. Uh, the Derflinger was the most powerful German battlecruisers. Ooh. So the most powerful German battlecruisers are facing the weakest British battlecruisers. Would that yeah. be right? Yeah. Now, 1826, Invincible opened fire on Litsov. Inflexible also concentrates her fire on Litsov, while Indomitable ranged in on Derflinger. Now, within the next eight minutes, Invincible scored eight hits on Litsov at a range of 9,600 yards. It is definitely Litsov. That's, uh, that's, uh, uh, it's L-U. Yeah, puts off. Is it? Why do Germans pronounce things funny? Because they're German. Oh. Uh, it may have been their recent gunnery practice at Scarpa Flow that made a real difference to their gunnery, or possibly just the closer range and favourable gunnery conditions. Yeah, that would Whatever make a the reason, the Invincible, Indomitable, and Inflexible battered the German battlecruisers to buggery. Uh, Technical uh, term. It is a technical term, isn't it? And I'm going to be Commander Hubert Danruther, of, uh, who's the gunnery officer. He's up in the foretop of HMS Invincible. Invincible then turned and came into action at about 6.15 with a leading enemy battlecruiser, which was thought to be the Derflinger. Fire was opened at the enemy at about 8,000 yards and several hits were observed. Admiral Hood hailed the control officer in the control top from the forebridge. Your firing is very good. Keep it as quickly as you can. Every shot is telling. This was the last order heard from the Admiral or Captain, who were both on the bridge at the end. Spoilers. Ooh. Now, the German ships are suffering severe damage, and you're going to be uh, Commander Paschen, who's aboard uh, SMS Lutzow. I would say Passion. P-A-S-C-H-E-N. You are better at German pronunciation than me, in every well, also, way. I'm more passionate. Oh, I see what you did there. So I'm Commander Passion on board SMS Lutzov. There began a phase of the battle compared with which all that had hitherto happened was play. While our own smoke completely hid the target from me so that I had to hand over to the aft control, a hail of hits descended on us from port aft and port ahead. There nothing could be seen but red flashes, not the shadow of a ship. 
Now, the, 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 the several hits scored on the Lutzow, or Lutzow, or however we pronounce it, and Lutzow. one of them was eventually to, to doom it, wasn't it? It, it? it actually, it does for the Lutzow, and, and you're going to be commander of something beginning with Passion. P. Every ship has its weak spots. Our Achilles heel was the broadside torpedo flat situated forward of turret A. Here, unfortunately, for reasons of space, the torpedo bulkhead, that incomparable protection against hits below the waterline, which was such a marked advantage in German ships as compared to foreign ones, had been left out. So two heavy enemy shells succeeded in penetrating under the belt and burst so effectively that the whole of the ship forward of A turret filled practically at once. And um, oh, that well, that that will eventually do for it. It does eventually sink that night uh, uh, through through those hits caused by the Invincible. It's believed, and uh, and eventually they torpedo her to finish her off because she cannot get home. She's uh, floundering. Then, then, then. So it's all going well. Everything's great. Yeah, Gary. Yeah, we're, it's all going well. We're battering them to buggery. Everything's going well. And then. At about 18.30, just for a few fateful moments, the mists seem to open up before the... And the naughty old Germans can actually see who's firing at them, see their tormentors. That's the third battlecruiser squadron. And they're right in front of them at close range. And once again, you're going to be Commander Passion. Meanwhile, we had turned to the south and suddenly there appeared plainly and comparatively near an English battlecruiser of the Invincible class, four points aft. I cannot express the delight I felt at having one of these tormentors clearly in sight and like lightning the orders are given. Yeah, well, it wasn't the Invincible class. It was the Invincible, wasn't it? And uh, now, so this German shelling uh, from from uh, from the Lutzow is concentrated on on, 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 on the Invincible. The, the mummy and daddy, well, the... Would you say it's a mummy or daddy or both of all battlecruisers or progenitor or whatever? Um, it's not a situation she's been designed to face. Speed was meant to be her protection. And here she is. She's under fire from two heavily armed, better armoured and all round more modern, better German battlecruisers. And it's not only that, is it? What, what's the other problem? What is the other well, problem? It's at a range where it's only a question of where the shells would hit that would determine her fate. The, la- the light armour protection of the Invincible couldn't hope to withstand this kind of punishment. Only luck could be her salvation in those circumstances. And she'd already been lucky at the Falklands when that shell uh, nearly penetrated. So now I'm going um, Able seaman Ernest Dandridge. Now he's a range taker and he's up. With the, uh, in the foretop. And who's he with? Who's he with? Well, he's with the gunnery officer commander Hubert Danruther, who we've mentioned earlier, and chief petty officer Walter Thompson. And you are going to be able seaman Ernest Dan- Dandridge. The first German salvos fell about 1,200 yards short, but they gradually fell closer until they were straddling the Invincible, deluging the ship with shell splashes while bits, while pieces of shrapnel buzzed all over the ship. Now, the Germans correct their gunnery quickly. It doesn't take long, is it? And they begin to, to hit hard. Hard, hard, hard. And, and I'm going to be Commander Georg von Haas from the SMS Derflinger. 
Her guns were trained on us, and immediately another salvo crashed out, straddling us completely. Range 9,000, roared leading seaman Hanel. 9,000, salvos fire, I ordered, and with feverish anxiety I waited for our splashes. Over, two hits, called out Lieutenant Commander Stosh. I gave the order, a hundred down, good, rapid, and thirty seconds after the first salvo, the second left the guns. I observed two short splashes and two hits. Stosh called, hits, every twenty seconds came the roar of another salvo. At 6.31, the Derflinger fired her last salvo at this ship, and that ship's the, the Invincible. Now, um, so what's happening? Both the Lutzoff and the Derflinger were concentrating their broadsides on the Invincible, and I'm going to be Commander Passion aboard SMS Lutzoff. I look again at the enemy. Over, four down, salvo, a straddle salvo. As the sound of the fall of shot indicator squeaks, the red flame flashes up nicely and unmistakably from the water columns around the enemy. Signs of a hit like these make a very definite impression if one has seen them twice. And sure enough, only a few seconds pass before the red glow breaks out everywhere and this ship too blows up. It was the invincible, the unconquerable, conquered. No need to be so like that, Gary. The Invincible blows up at, uh, well, it's British Wreck 1834. All times, remember, are slightly inaccurate because the, 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 the limitations on timing devices at the time. And I'm going to be Commander Hubert Danruther, who's uh, up in the foretop on HMS Invincible. He says this, The ship had been hit several times by heavy shell, but no appreciable damage had been done. Uh, when at 6.34pm, a heavy shell struck Q turret and bursting inside blew the roof off. This was observed from the control top. Almost immediately following, there was a tremendous explosion amidships, indicating that Q magazine had blown up. The ship broke in half and sank in 10 or 15 seconds. Wow. That's not long, is it? In fact, it's about that That's, long. Uh, it's immediate. It, uh, wow. So the the salvo had hit uh, hit the the had hit the invincible amidships. Uh, it penetrated the seven inch face armor of Q turret, and it seems to have detonated in the gun house where it killed all the marines who were that that was a turret they uh, they uh, were manning, except one, well, incredibly lucky chap, and this chap's called Marine Brian Gasson. Gasson, yeah, and he was rangefinder, uh, in, and he was actually inside Q turret when uh, when when the, the world must have exploded all round him. And you're going to be Marine Brian Gasson on the Invincible, not for long now. Suddenly, our turret was struck between the two 12-inch guns and appeared to me to lift off the top of the turret, and another of the same salvo followed. The flashes passed down to both midship magazines containing 50 tonnes of cordite. The explosion broke the ship in half. I owe my survival, I think, to the fact that I was in a separate compartment at the back of the turret with my head through a hole cutting the top. Some of the initial flash must have got through to my compartment as I was burnt on the hand, arms and head. Luckily, my eyes escaped. I must have instinctively covered them with my hands. The rangefinder and myself had only a light armour covering. I think this came off, and as the ship sank, I floated to the surface. Now that is <clears throat> incredibly lucky. Uh, what had happened, and, and there are arguments about this, the turret had been penetrated and the explosion of the shell in the turret had ignited the ammunition there. Now, 
why is there? A, I mean, what about anti-flash precaution? Tell me, tell me. Is well, there... they're, they're routinely ignored in an effort to improve the rate of fire. Cordite was everywhere, and the resultant flash roared down the hoist into the magazine. Now, other people have, uh, and v- Tarrant mentions this, uh, V.E. Tarrant in his book Battlecruiser Invincible, there's a, just a thought that another shell from the same salvo had hit the uh, in- um, uh, Invincible and penetrated the uh, the armour belt or got through and hit the di- uh, magazine directly. But we don't agree with that, and I don't think Tarrant does either. I think that the, the eyewitness accounts are quite clear, the photograph's quite clear, Q-Turret was p- penetrated, the flash uh, uh, went down to the magazine and blew up. And that's what the witnesses, Gasson and uh, Dan Ruther, say. Uh, so... Uh, so, so whatever I, I, it blew I'm, up with a devastating explosion. That's a fact. So now, that that that's the midship magazine, is it? So yep. that feeds the P and Q turrets. Now they're the ones on either side of the ship, aren't they? They are. Now the whole central section of the ship, including the boiler rooms, funnels, and the two midship turrets, was torn apart in a ball of crimson flame, some four hundred foot high, and the tripod mast collapsed. Ooh. Now, midshipman John Croom, he was horror-struck, and, and he was observing from aboard the Indomitable. And so you're going behind. to be midshipman John Croom of HMS Indomitable. I'm not going to read this as silly voice, although I'm tempted with midshipmen always, but because uh, it's serious. This. There was a terrific flash from the Invincible, then in sight, as we turned towards the enemy a point or so. And she went up in a column of smoke, <coughs> several hundred feet high, decorated the edges by bits and pieces of, of what a second before had been a battle cruiser and the flagship of our squadron. Of this astonishing spectacle, I took a photograph, which I expect was probably unique, and that uh, that is in the collection at the War Museum. I must have got the explosion almost at its height, since the column of smoke and debris s- took certainly three seconds to get up to its full height. So utterly unexpected and certain, un- sudden sorry, was this calamity that I don't think it made much impression on me until quite a time afterwards. I remember some small bits of falling debris bouncing on top of the turret and it drove me back to the shelter of my four-inch gun shield. One of these pieces, which happened to stay on top of the turret, I picked up as a souvenir two or three minutes later. I'll burn my hand quite nicely, did so, to my surprise and disgust. As it looked cold enough, you could always see whether something's hot or cold. Mm. Now, of the crew of 1,032 men on the Invincible, just six survived as she went down, as we mentioned, in about 15 seconds. This is terrible. This is a disaster, isn't it? It's unbelievable. And I'm going to be Commander Hubert Danruther. She went down with a crash, and I was pushed out of her. When I came up to the surface again, I was a bit out of breath, and I saw a target floating by. That's a target that they aimed at with the bangy things. So I went and got on it and found two other fellows there. The bow and the stern were right up, <coughs> leaning on the bottom. Now, when a black pile of smoke cleared, it was revealed that the force of the explosion had split the Invincible in two. What could be seen was a bizarre sight, with 50-foot sections of both bow and stern standing erect out of the water, resting on the seabed below. So it's snapped in two, and the two bits are actually balanced on the bottom of the sea. Now, able seaman Ernest Dandridge, he'd been in the foretop when the explosion occurred. He was saved because the mast collapsed away rather than into 
the ball of flame. So pure and luck it, there. And of course, that's why uh, that's why Dan Ruther was ne- stood next to him. That's th- why he survived as well. So I'm going to be Abel Seaman Ernest Dandridge. The force of the explosion seemed to lift the centre of the ship right out of the sea. And it was only a matter of 30 seconds before I found myself struggling in the water. I had barely time to realise there had been an explosion before the ship was gone. I was thrown upon the rangefinder in one corner of the top. The rangefinder was smashed. <coughs> when the ship traversed, I narrowly escaped being pinned to the side of the top of it, of the top by, by it. But I just managed to pull myself clear in time. I scrambled to the upper part of the top and dived out when the mast hit the water. When I came to the surface, I was clear of the sinking ship and almost choked with the water I had swallowed. Upon looking round, I saw Chief Petty Officer Thompson. He called out to me and pointed to some floating wreckage. I grasped a kit bag and clung to it. Then a target, which had floated from, from, from came along, and, and I climbed upon it, where Compson joined me. Compson? Thompson. Yeah, sorry. Shortly afterwards, Commander Dan Ruther and Lieutenant Sanford. Now, I ought to point out, they'd escaped through the open hatch of the... Uh, the San- Sanford had escaped through the open hatch of the four conning tower. That's the, where the ship's commanded from. It's above the bridge when the ship went down. They also scrambled onto the target. And we, we heard Dan Ruther mentioned he got on that target. Another man who had succeeded in getting clear of the foretop when the mast collapsed into the sea struck out for the target, but with floundering arms he drowned before he could reach us. Whilst we were in the water, the battle still raged and shells kept falling in the sea round us. Several times we were drenched by the wash of big ships which went racing past and sending their stern waves rolling over the target. The water was fairly smooth, though very cold, and from being so frequently washed down, we felt this very much. And uh, I I, can't, I just can't imagine what it was like. I mean, when, when he says cold, he means bloody cold bloody freezing um somewhere nearby as you gary in your role as uh, the rather badly burnt gunner brian gasson who if you remember had been blown out of the q turret the next thing i knew i was deep down in the water entangled in wreckage freeing myself i braced myself by standing to attention so to speak and surfaced in an air bubble I saw the two ends sticking out of the water and looked around for other people and to my surprise saw no one. After about half an hour, the destroyer HMS Badger approached, lowered boats and picked up any survivors. Luckily for me, the Badger carried a doctor and my burns were carefully treated. Now, um, he's so lucky. Why hadn't the big ship stopped? Why why was it left to a destroyer? This is obvious, but I'm just asking you, Gary. Well, if they'd stopped, they'd potentially be uh, subject to attack by torpedo, for example, from the, the destroyers. And it'd be an easier target for shells. An easier so. target, because they're not moving. And they I mean, were shooting at the Germans, weren't they? In the aftermath, the visibility closed in again for the Germans, and the uh, inflexible and indomitable took their brutal revenge on the Hitler's flagship, the Lutzov. But for the Invincible and her crew, the Battle of Jutland, and life was over. Now, um, it's worked, yeah, because basically it's just that few moments when they could see the, the British from the German battlecruisers. And then it closes back in and it's back to before. We could see perfectly. The Germans couldn't see us at all. The visibility over the sea is a weird thing. It's a weird thing, isn't it? Now, so what happened? So what, what happened? What happened? Well, it's controversial, isn't it? Uh, we have a collective view, Gary, I think, that... Um, 
it, it's it's a chicken and egg situation, is it? So which is it that causes a disaster? Is it the inadequate flash precautions and poor gunnery discipline, which means that the, the turrets are often full of uh, cordite? Or is it the inadequate uh, armour well, protection? You could argue that the fatal seed was, was sown in the design all those years before. It, it so was completely you're, you're inadequate. The armour. That's yeah. what. Yeah, so if we've got to put it bluntly, if the turret hadn't been penetrated... Then, then the flash wouldn't have happened. The, the the poor gunnery discipline, the 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 lack of flash precautions, that is a problem. But first, it's a chicken and egg situation. The yeah, two yeah. things together doom the ship. Could and let's not some... forget, two years earlier, the Invincible had nearly been sunk in the Battle of the Falklands by an eight point two inch shell from the Shan horse, which penetrated her side and uh, endangered the nearby magazine. She'd escaped then, but her inadequate armour was the root cause flaw that's, that's the flaw isn't makeup. it that yeah. is that is it you know now um so all british battle cruisers uh had reduced armor plate armor uh to get the high speeds and to carry the highest possible guns what did the germans do then they, they'd been far more sensible hadn't they well they were better designed they they, they, they had better armor protection they had smaller guns as a result uh, because your point you can't have everything you can't have big guns thick armor speed you cannot something has to give and the germans had a more balanced approach it, uh, i think so now uh, who do we blame for the loss of the invincible do we blame hood gallant admiral doing his best do we blame Beatty? No, not really anything to do with him do we well, blame jellico i think it comes down to to fisher and uh, his vainglorious and bombastic assertion that speed would be their armor now, if you said that to me, I would say, what a dickhead, is what I would say. And, would you? and I would, because to be absolutely honest, that that is just, it sounds clever, but it's not. It's stupid, and it dooms, it dooms over a 1,000 men on the Invincible. But it's not just the Invincible, is it, that blows up? The Indefatigable had blown up. The Queen Mary had blown up. And I could think of another battlecruiser that blows up 30 years later, 20 years later, 20 years later. What's that? Well, battleship Hood wasn't a, a battleship, was it? And and uh, it, it, the battle cruisers, British battle cruisers, are dangerous. They're badly designed. They're not strong enough in their armour. Well, that's the end of the story of the Invincible. Uh, there's a new Invincible now, uh, if you like. Although, have we scrapped it? I think we just scrapped it, haven't we? Or did we sell it to someone? Do we? Do we have a navy now? We're just a defence force. Yes. Well, on that note, I think we'll leave our uh, our benighted country. Well, I hope you you all feel better soon, Pete, and we can get back to to the professional standard of podcast to which our listeners have become accustomed. Ooh. Cheers, Cheers Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?